Don't you think that they are thinking with, with every stroke of the oar? Why is Jesus not with us? Why did he send us away without him? He's never done that before. One of the first things that I notice about the story is the tremendous grace and mercy of Jesus to send them into the storm. Let me say that again. The tremendous grace that Jesus shows to them by sending them into the storm, because one of the things that Jesus just did by sending them into the storm, he has prevented their further sin. He has sent them into the storm, among other reasons, to stop the furtherance of their sin. So let's just think back real quickly to what the problem was with the disciples, why it was that Jesus was so firm with them, why it was that Jesus told them to leave. We're told plainly by both John and the end of the story in Mark's gospel that the disciples here had been caught up in this euphoric excitement of the crowd over this man, Jesus, who has the charisma. He has what it takes. He's got the personality. He's got all this healing stuff going on. He's an incredible teacher. He's got what it takes to be the king that we've been looking for. And the disciples being all caught up in this, this is the reason that Jesus then compelled them to leave. And by compelling them to leave, he then forces them into a situation in which their circumstances caused them to stop sinning in that way, to stop thinking along the lines of of redefining Jesus and his mission, so to speak. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost, not to be some political deliverer. And yet they had begun to reinterpret what his mission was and, and to reinterpret it in a way that was favorable to them in an earthly way, that was going to benefit them in an earthly way. And then reinterpreting this mission of Jesus, Jesus had stopped that sinful line of thinking by sending them into an environment in which their afflictions caused them to be distracted from that in such a way that they cease sinning in that way. Now, we know a little bit later on in the story that they're going to go down the same path once again. They're going to begin to reinterpret Jesus's mission in such a way that is more favorable to them in an earthly definition, in an earthly manner. Because remember the occasion where Jesus is going to say to them, we're on our way to Jerusalem. So let me tell you, once again, what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem, they are going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise from the dead. And then Peter, as the spokesman, steps forward and says, no, 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 no. That's not what we're doing, Jesus. That's not a good plan. You see how they're reinterpreting Jesus' mission in a way that's more beneficial to them. That's the same thing that they had done on the day of feeding as Jesus is multiplying the bread and fish. And so Jesus steps in to mercifully stop their sinning by sending them into an affliction. Do you know that that's how God does sometimes? You know, whenever we as believers enter into times of affliction in our life, What do we always, the the thing that we most want the answer for is what? Why? What, why? What are you doing, God? If I just knew what you were doing, I think I could deal with this a little more or a little better. So we want to know why. 
Why is this affliction upon me? Now, then we rack our brains. Is this because of a sin that I've committed? Is this because of some disobedience? What's God trying to teach me? You ever been there? We've all been there. Well, do you know that oftentimes, at least one of the purposes of the affliction could be to prevent you from sinning further or to stop a sinful path that you're on? Because that's how God often works. You want some biblical support for that? Well, glad you asked. What about Paul? 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When Paul says to us, because of the surpassing revelations, what did God do? He sent into me, he sent to me a messenger of Satan, a thorn in my side. Now, we don't know what that affliction was. We're never told. But we know for sure that that affliction was severe. It was highly unpleasant. It was highly uncomfortable. Why? Because Paul tells us quite plainly that he pleaded with God three times to remove it. And God says, I will not remove it because, Paul, what this affliction is doing is it's preventing a sin and it's the sin of pride. Because Paul himself says, lest I get swept up in pride because of the surpassing revelation. You can just put yourself in Paul's place, can't you? As Paul is teaching and he's revealing to, this, to these new churches, these new Christians, and God is pouring into Paul's spirit such revelations, such revelations as we read in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Colossians 2 that we read earlier, Romans 7, 8, 9, 10. All these surpassing revelations. Can't you just hear the people clamoring? Paul, you are amazing. How do you know these things? God has revealed to you such incredible things. And can't you imagine even the most humble person, after hearing that and hearing that and hearing that, he hears it in Corinth, he hears it over in Galatia, he hears it in Thessalonica, he hears it in Philippi, and after so many times of hearing it, can't you just see just the birth of pride, the swelling of pride? And Paul says, to prevent me from sinning in that way, God sent affliction to me and the affliction served to negate the sin or to block the sin or to not allow the sin to begin to take place. Paul says that plainly. An affliction came and the purpose of the affliction was to prevent me from sinning. God says to Paul, you know, Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. I can use the weakest person on the, on the globe. I can use the most broken, weak man that you have, can imagine. But here's what I don't use. I don't use prideful people. And I will not use you if pride begins to consume you. And so to prevent that, Paul, here is the grace of an affliction. You see it there? What about another example? What about the example of David? We see this from 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27, just the context of that story is this. We know the story. Saul is trying to kill David. There's this whole thing about David's the true anointed king and Saul, he has fallen from grace and all this. And so he's chasing David all through the countryside trying to kill David. At the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 27, David becomes discouraged. And what David said, this is all in your notes if you want to follow along. What David says to himself is, you know what? Saul's going to get me sooner or later. 
Sooner or later, Saul is going to catch up with me and he's going to kill me. So I might as well do what? Anybody know? I might as well go to the Philistines. Now, just a little reminder, the Philistines were the sworn enemies of God's people from the beginning of their existence to the end of their existence. And so David says, Saul's going to get me sooner or later. I may as well go to the Philistines. And you want to say, alarm bells, David. Wait, They're the enemies of God's people. You're the anointed king of God's people. What are you thinking? But he goes anyway. He goes to the Philistines and we read through chapter 27 there. Chapter 27 is the detailing of his escapades as he fights for the, Philippi, for the Philistines. He takes his band of loyal followers, the mighty men of David, and they go to the Philistines and they begin doing all these raids for the Philistines, attacking all these peoples that are the enemies of the Philistines and just doing a bang them up job. Then chapter 28 comes. Chapter 28 is the witch of Endor. Skipping over that, we come to chapter 29 from verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And then the next, that next sentence, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So if the alarm bells hadn't gone up for David before to say, wait a minute, why am I fighting for the Philistines? Now they should be absolutely ringing loudly in his ears to say, now the Philistines are preparing to go to battle against Israel. And then David, with all of his mighty men, he's here saying, let's go. I'm ready. I'm ready. Those old Israelites, they've been trying to kill me. They're loyal to Saul. They've been chasing me. Let's go fight them. But then, as the story goes, the Philistines commander, who has all the confidence in the world in David, all of his sub-commanders come to him and they say, wait a minute, do you realize we're about to go to battle against his people? We can't do that. We can't trust that guy. And, they, and he says, sure we can. He's never let us down yet. No, no, no. We can't trust that guy. And so then we read the commanders of the Philistines were angry with them. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place from which you've assigned him, that he may go down, not go down with us into the battle. So they send David away from the battle. They won't let him fight because the commanders of the Philistines said, wait a minute, we just can't trust this guy. So we, what was David intending to do? Was David intending to pretend like he was going to fight the Israelites, but instead turn around and fight the Philistines? No. His intention was to fight the, Philist the, the Israelites. But do you see how God implanted that affliction in his life? David was a man of war. So whatever impression that you have in your mind, whatever picture, mental picture that you have of David, this little scrawny guy that liked to, to play the lyre and write poetry, you know, that's not David. Yeah, he, he wrote poetry and he, he played the musical instruments and stuff. But David was a successful, vicious man of war. David had a lot of blood on his hands. And for a man of war to be disallowed from going into the battle was a tremendous insult to him. That was an affliction. And God sent that affliction upon him. Why? Because he was about to sin even more. He had already sinned by fighting for the enemies of God's people. But now he was about to sin even further by fighting directly against God's people. And God says, in my mercy, I'll stop this. And I'll stop it with an affliction. So there's another example. What about another example? Remember the story of Hezekiah? Remember how Hezekiah was this godly king of Judah? 
And then we, Hezekiah gets the news that he's sick and that his, the end of his days are coming close. Second Kings chapter 20, he becomes sick to the point of death. And then he prays this prayer to God and he says, God, I, please remember you. I've walked before you in faithfulness with my whole heart and I've done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly, we're told. And then the word of the Lord came to them and they said, turn back. This is speaking to Isaiah. Turn and say to Hezekiah, the leader of the people, thus says the Lord, the God of David of your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And so we know how God then gives Hezekiah 15 more years. Now, flipping over to Isaiah chapter 39, the other part of that story is that during that 15 years, we know what happens. Hezekiah, these Babylonians come from Babylon and the Babylonians, we know they're going to be the enemies of God's people. And then what does Hezekiah do? He says, come on in, guys. Let me let me show you where we keep all our treasures. It's right down here, right through this door. Oh, the combination is, is such and such. Make sure you write down that combination in case we ever need somebody. So here's where we keep all our stuff. Here's where we keep all, all our most important things. Isn't this a lot of treasure, guys? And then we know that, of course, they take that information back and then they come back and they raid and they steal. And oh, Now, all that was part of God's plan. God's plan was to bring a type of judgment against his people for their disobedience. But in terms of Hezekiah, do you see how Hezekiah... God was granting him mercy by way of the end of his life. And he pleaded with God and God removed the mercy and actually allowed Hezekiah or opened the door for Hezekiah to continue further in sin. There's another example there. You may can see examples in your own life, but if you can't see them, you can know that they're there. One of the things that God often does in affliction is he prevents you from either sinning further or beginning to enter into a sin that you might have entered into without that affliction. So this is what God is doing with the disciples. The disciples have started to go down this path of thinking of Jesus in a wrong-headed sort of way, in a hard-hearted sort of way. And Jesus is going to stop that because one of the things the disciples cannot be contemplating on the water is, I wonder what color robes we're going to get. You think we're going to get purple robes or red robes? No. They're thinking about living through the night. So in His mercy, He sends this affliction upon them. Now, as this affliction comes to them, this intense period of six, eight, nine hours of intense affliction, what we're going to see in this are two of the probably the most distasteful and disturbing things that also are the most common things that all Christians seem to manifest in times of affliction, particularly intense affliction. So just as a sort of a warning, the rest of the the time this morning, we're going to be talking about things that we see in the disciples, but also you see in yourself. And they're not pretty. They are commonalities that Every believer, when we experience times of affliction, these are things that we see in ourselves or battle against, and they're not pretty to look at. And the first thing that we see is that what seems to, to come to their thoughts, or certainly what comes to our thoughts in periods like this, has to be this. Don't you think they have to be thinking, where's Jesus? Why did he stay behind? They haven't forgotten the first storm. That was just a period of probably weeks ago. The first storm in which they were 
In fact, that storm is presented to us as even more frightening and fearful than this storm. That was a storm that they gave up hope. They came to Jesus and said, we're, we're about to die, Jesus. They had given up hope. We're not necessarily told that they've given up hope here, but we are told that they are tortured and tormented. Don't you think that they are thinking with, with every stroke of the oar? Why is Jesus not with us? Why did he send us away without him? He's never done that before. Is there another instance in which Jesus sent the disciples away like this? He sent them out in this period of ministry, but He has not sent them away into an affliction without Him. I think for certain, with every stroke of the oar, the disciples are saying, where is my Lord? Why is He not here? He spoke to the storm before. If he was here, he would speak to this storm. But he has left us here. We are all alone in the boat. And indeed, certainly from their perspective, Jesus seems distant and unconcerned and disconnected from their entire struggle. Now, we see the story from both sides because the story is being narrated to us by Mark. So we see both Jesus on the mountain and the disciples on the water. So we see what's happening. And we know that Jesus has not abandoned them. In fact, we know that Jesus is in prayer. What's Jesus praying for? Certainly, He's praying for the disciples on the water. Which, by the way, by the way, this is one of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture of Jesus as the intercessor. Did you pick up on that picture? The disciples are in the middle of the storm. They're in the middle of affliction. And what's Jesus doing? He's praying for them. I mean, that's the picture of the intercessor, the one who goes before God on our behalf, the one who intercedes for us. But that's just what we see. If we were in the boat, we wouldn't see that. If we were in the boat, all we would see are the waves and the sea spray and we would feel the wind and we would feel the rain on our face and we would feel the desperation. We would feel the ache in the back and we would feel the burn in our arms and we would feel how we just don't don't think we can make it one more stroke. We've been going six hours. I just don't think we can make it through the rest of the night. We would feel all of that. We wouldn't see Jesus on the mountain praying. And so to us, it would just seem like the Lord is just so disconnected from what I'm experiencing, so uncaring, so distant. Have you felt that way? Now, most believers, when we experience times of affliction, we don't normally experience that. We don't normally, we aren't normally tempted to think in that way at first. Most believers have the strength of faith to endure afflictions for a time before our faith begins to weaken and falter and we go into that place of thinking, God just doesn't care. But you know what? Jesus didn't come to them in the first watch of the night. He didn't come to them in the second watch of the night. He didn't come to them in the third watch of the night. He waited for the fourth watch of the night. Do you think it's entirely reasonable that as the storm settles in and they have been rowing now one hour, they're not too worried. Two hours, still not too worried. By the fifth hour, 
their faith is weakened. And they are no doubt saying, at least within their own hearts, maybe to one another, where is Jesus? And why did He send us out here all alone? Does He not care? They've already asked that question. Do you not care that we drown? Do you not care that we perish? I think they're asking that question all over again. Because as Jesus is now physically separated from them, one of the things Jesus is doing is He's beginning to teach them something that they're going to really need to rely on once He goes away and the Spirit comes and the church is born. And what they're going to really need to rely on is that even though they can't see Jesus, Jesus is there. But they don't know that yet because they've not yet experienced Jesus without Jesus in their physical presence. And so what He's now going to begin showing them is my physical presence is not what you need. What you need is my spiritual presence, and that's always with you. But they don't see that lesson yet. So I find it to be of little doubt that the disciples are are no doubt, their hearts are in turmoil, probably greater turmoil than the storm, that this man, Jesus, whom we thought cared for us, apparently maybe he doesn't. Maybe I was mistaken. Maybe, Maybe we misjudged him. Maybe he got all wrapped up in that crowd. They were clamoring to make him king. You know what? He sent us away. Maybe he doesn't really want us to be by his side when he takes the throne. Maybe he's made other plans for himself. Maybe he's surrounded himself with other disciples from that crowd that was earlier today. You think those thoughts are entering their minds? Maybe he really doesn't care for us at all. Because what is happening in this boat, you can see it plain as day, can't you? Jesus is, in a sense, hiding from them. He has intentionally separated Himself from them physically because He is seeking to, for a time, hide His face from His disciples. Because what He's going to show them, He has to show them in the middle of a trial and an affliction in which He's not physically there. 